Now we return back to the Shunammite woman. The Shunammite woman, the one with the son who died, and she forced Elisha to do something about it, and this is where he was humbled. Verse chapter 8, verse 1. Now Elisha advised the woman whose son he had brought back to life, Your family should go and live somewhere else for a while. For Yahweh has decreed that a famine will overtake the land for seven years. So the woman did as the prophet said, and she and her family went and lived in the land of the Philistines for seven years. When the seven years had was over with, the woman returned to the land from the land of the Philistines and went to the king to ask to give her land and house and field back. Now this is confusing. Because remember, going outside the land is not good. And technically the Philistine territory is in the land of God, but it's occupied by the Philistines. It has been clearly demonstrated in the life of David that going to Philistine territory is not good. Nothing good happens when you go there. And you're not even when they go to Egypt and they trust in the Egyptian kingdom. When they go to the Philistines and trust in them, God condemns them. Now you have the prophet who is sending her there to protect her from the famine. And she's going to live there for seven years. In the process of living there for seven years, her land is taken from her. The king probably seized it for his own purposes, which was not uncommon. So the question is, why in the world is the prophet sending to her to Philistine territory? That is so contrary to the constant theme that the Bible has been portraying of not going to the enemy. In fact, Deuteronomy strictly forbid going to foreign lands and trusting them and depending on them. And yet the prophet is telling her to go there. Not only that, exactly what you would think has happened, something bad happened to her. Her land was taken from her, and she has no land. Now remember, she was a woman of great political connections. It is not every woman or even any, every man that can just walk into the king's palace and say, I want my house and fields back. Yet she has enough clout that she's able to get in. So the question is, why? Now it just happened to be that the king was talking to Gehazi, the prophet's servant, and said, tell me all the great things which Elisha had done. Now this is interesting because Gehazi's skin disease must not be bad enough that the king doesn't want him in the palace. So we don't know what's going on there with that. While Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had brought the dead back to life, the woman whose son he had brought back to life just happened to come in and ask the king for her house and field back. And Gehazi said, My master, O king, this is the very woman and her son whom Elijah brought back to life. So the providence of God has had Gehazi there just at the moment telling the king. This is also very interesting. Is Has the king ever been really responsive or in good favor with Elisha? Or Elisha in good favor with him? No. He keeps cursing Elisha. This is your fault. This is your fault. This is your fault. And you're like, okay, now he's got the servant. He's just like, tell me stories about Elisha. There's a lot of things that we don't seem to understand what's going on, why the king is like this. Maybe his eyes have been opened up after Elisha's prophecy has been fulfilled, and he's like, this has happened a lot. Maybe I should hear some stories. But she comes in right at that moment. Verse 6, The king asked the woman about it, and she gave him the details. And the king assigned a eunuch to take care of her request and ordered him Give her back everything that she owns, as well as the amount of crops her field produced from the day she left the land until now. 
So God restores all her lands to her, even though she had left Philistine, to go to Philistine territory and came back. Now the question is, why? Most scholars believe, because at this point, Yahweh has already begun to demonstrate that he's abandoning the people of Israel. And we're seeing a theme. Remember, the idea of exile was first mentioned under Solomon. Because Solomon's sin, God is telling them that you're going to go into exile. So he keeps portraying this theme over and over again of exile and restoration. Exile and restoration. And we see this land theme of Elisha being cast out of the land to go to the widow. And then he comes back and brings rain. We see the idea of Jeroboam leaving and coming back. And what God is going to be communicating is over and over and over again is that he's going to be sending them to exile into a foreign territory like Philistia. They're going to lose all their lands to the Assyrians like the widow, the, the, the Shunammite woman has. And yet God is going to bring them back one day and restore the lands to them like the Shunammite woman. And you're going to see this theme over and over again of God taking things away, putting them out of the land, and bringing them back and restoring them. And remember, what God does first and foremost is he usually communicates himself and theology with word pictures or real-life illustrations. Over and over again, he illustrates this stuff over and over. And then later people come in and put the theological thinking around it. Over and over and over and over again, God reveals himself as a God of compassion and mercy and justice. And he shows the exodus and how he provides for them. And he redeems them and a sacrificial lamb and dwelling in the tabernacle and all that kind of stuff. And then he shows them going to exile and coming back. And then Christ comes and literally does that. He does it on a spiritual level. And he, he judges them and he shows them mercy and compassion. He performs an exodus on the cross, so to speak. He does all these things. And then the epistle writers come in and they basically say that event back in the Exodus means this. And then Paul gives you this really long, wordy, no period paragraph explanation of the theology that's all behind those stories. And you're like, you read the paragraph and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I just read. It's so complicated and so many ideas crammed together. But he's doing that because you should already know the stories. If you know the stories already, then you can track him as he unpacks the complicated theology because the word picture has already been illustrated. It's kind of like what you do in like elementary Sunday school classes when you like show the pictures up and you try to illustrate and tell the story, and then you're like, and boys and girls, this means da-da-da-da, and then you start connecting it. And the girls and the boys make more sense of it after they've seen a story. Because stories communicate to us. So God is telling these stories of exile and return, exile and return, exile and return over and over again. When the prophets come, then they're going to give the theological point to what God is doing. And hopefully, and remember the prophets are about ready to come on the scene right now. When Elisha dies, that's when we're going to get the first prophets of judgment. Right now, Elijah and Elisha are warnings. And they're, they're providing for Israel and they're doing miracles. Once they fall off the scene and they die, Amos comes. And Amos starts bringing the judgment of exile. And he's going to start making connections about exile and restoration. 
But Israel's already seen that in a narrative form in their own life. So if God is able to take a Shunammite woman and bring her back out of Philistia, then the idea is that he should be able to bring the entire nation out of Babylon. And so we're going to start seeing this theme where, yes, it's wrong to go to Philistia, but the point is no longer on it's wrong to go to Philistia. The point is now on how God is going to bring you out and restore you. Because that's his promise of restoration. Because that feeds into the land covenant of Deuteronomy 30, where God (laughs) says one day you will break the Mosaic covenant and you will die under the Mosaic covenant, but I promise you unconditionally I will restore you to the lands. And so it could be that that's why this story is here. Is it's no longer on her disobedience, but now on the point that God wants to make about his restoration. We come to a new section. Just like we kind of camped out on Solomon for a while, and then after Solomon, the narrator just kind of went bam, 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 all these stories about kings. Then he slowed down and camped out on Ahab and Elijah for a long time. And then we kind of come here. And even though we've been on the same king, Jehoram, of Israel, we've been getting a lot of bam, 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 bam stories about Elisha that are all episodic. They're, they're not connected to each other. Now the narrator is going to slow down again and zoom in on Jehu. So now we're coming to um, Haziel. Haziel, Haziel, and Jehu. Now, who are those two guys? Good. Elijah was supposed to anoint Haziel as the new king over Aram and Jehu as the new king over Israel. And yet he never did it. And now it's been years. We know it's been at least seven years because that's how long the famine lasts. And so now Elisha is going to do what Elijah should have done all along. And that's where we're going to, the narrator is going to now slow down now, and it's going to go through Haziel very quickly, but it's going to really camp on Jehu for a while. So chapter 8, verse 7. Elisha traveled to Damascus while King Ben-Hadad of Syria was sick. And the king was told, the prophet has come here, So the king told Haziel, take a gift and go visit the prophet. Request for him an oracle from Yahweh and ask him, will I recover from his sickness? So Haziel went to visit Elisha and he took along with him a gift as well as 40 camel loads of all the fine things of Damascus. And when he arrived, he stood before him and said, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Assyria, has sent me with this question. Will I recover from this sickness? Now, once again, we have a foreigner of great power who's seeking out the prophet Elisha. We had the Syrian general Naaman seeking out Elisha for a miracle. And now we have Ben-Hadad seeking out Elisha for a miracle. Yet, we have seen three stories with the king of Israel where he never once went to God. He never once went to God. Elisha said to him, Go. Tell him, you will surely recover, but Yahweh has revealed to me that you will surely die. Like, what? You will recover, but you will die. Elisha just stared at him 
until Haziel became uncomfortable and awkward. Then the prophet started crying, and Haziel asked him, Why are you crying, my master? And that would be really awkward. So he tells you this message, and also he just stares at you. And he just stares at you and stares at you. Too. You're like, this is kind of weird and creepy and awkward. And then this grown man just starts bursting out into tears and crying. You're like, what? What's going on? And he asks him what's going on. And what Elisha tells him is he just received a vision. So the reason he was staring is because he's been brought into the divine counsel of Yahweh right then and there. And he sees a vision of the future And the scene is so horrific that it makes him cry. He replied, Elisha replied, because I know the trouble you will cause the Israelites. You will set fire to the fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword, smash their children to bits, and rip open their pregnant women. That would make you cry. Haziel said, how could your servant, who is as insignificant as a dog, accomplish this great military victory? Elisha answered, Yahweh has revealed to me that you will be the king of Syria. And he left Elisha and went to his master, Ben-Hadad, and asked him, and his master, Ben-Hadad, asked him, what did Elisha tell you? And Haziel replied, he told me that you will surely recover. The next day, Haziel took a piece of cloth dipped it in water, and spread it over Ben-Hadad's face until he suffocated to death. Then Haziel replaced him as king. So he did get better from the sickness, but he died. Now what's interesting about this is that this is reported in the annuals of Shalemanzer the third of Aram reports that basically Haziel is literally called a dog. And by dog, it doesn't mean like dog in an insulting way that way we use it today, like you're a dog. What it means is like an insignificant servant who has no um, prestigious family background. And in these annuals of the Third, it basically records that this insignificant servant in the house of Ben-Hadad, Haziel by name, ended up killing his own master and took the throne and became the next king of Aram. And so there are documents outside the Bible that confirm this exactly the way that God has described it. And so he becomes king. Now, here's the thing. You're like, wow, why is God anointing this guy? Because now Israel has moved into the point of pure judgment. Israel has seen the mercy of God and the judgment of God, but mostly the mercy And Israel has ignored it, ignored it, ignored it, ignored it. And the people who of all people should know better have ignored it. Yet the foreigners and the poor and the skin disease have seen very little and responded with great faith. And so now this is the beginning of no longer Aram being a thorn in the sight of Israel, no longer them being a nuisance who sometimes succeeds and sometimes doesn't, but now they're going to be completely unleashed and just attack after attack after attack. And it also becomes a prelude for the Assyrians because what Haziel and the following kings of Aram do is child's play compared to what the Assyrians are going to bring. And so this is the last chance to repent. 
So what God is doing, he's turning up the heat on suffering. And the idea is that now that there's no, going to be no mercy and God's not going to let up, hopefully they'll repent. They'll repent. But they won't. And they will be so stubborn. You know, all through the Bible, God calls Israel like, I know this stiff-necked people. I cannot turn their neck towards me in obedience and righteousness. And so I will condemn them and judge them. Well, when you get to the prophets, God will call them iron-necked. They have become so stubborn and so evil, now their necks are like iron. Not a stiff neck in the morning, but an iron neck that does not turn at all. And they will bring the judgment. And then we will get this over and over again to the point that when we get to Manasseh, later in the book of Kings, which will be during the time period of Jeremiah, but during the time of Kings under Manasseh and the prophet of Jeremiah, God then comes in and says, it's too late. I don't care if you ever repent. The Assyrians and the Babylonians are coming. There's nothing you can do to change this anymore. And it's kind of like if you've ever had a, or ever seen an extremely rebellious kid who just basically shakes their fist at you or somebody else all the time. There's a point where it's like, I don't care if you ever say I'm sorry again. You're going to be punished. Because you've said this so many times and nothing changes. And I cannot believe you anymore at all. And so this is what we're coming to. And God warned in Deuteronomy. He is not, and this is so important about God too. So many people read this and see a rash, harsh God that just flies off the handle and punishes people. But that's not at all what we're seeing. God made it very clear in Deuteronomy that if you disobey me and break the covenant, then I will bring a lack of production in the land. And if you continue to do that, I will bring famines. And if you continue to do that, I allow people to attack you. If you continue to do that, I allow them to carry off your people. If you continue to do that, then I will bring in armies that will oppress you and live within your land and occupy you and massacre you. And if you continue to do that, then I'll take you into exile. And so it's the same thing. It's like, if you continue to disobey me, I'm going to ground you for a month. If you disobey me again, I'm going to take away your phone and ground you for two months. If you, could, I mean, you just you keep escalating it. And that's what God is doing. And so he has been, I mean, God, they've been doing this since 1446 when they left Egypt. We're now in the 800s. And so he's been incredibly patient with them. He sent them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them. And he has done miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And how? And he has slowly increased the judgment over 700 years. We usually increase the judgment over hours or days. He's increasing over hundreds and hundreds of years. And then people read the Bible and they're like, that's a harsh, cruel God. <laughs> no way. I would like you to see that same patience with your children. That's what I, that's what I've actually told somebody that one day. Let me come to your house and live with you for a week and see how your escalation compares to God's. And let me see how many times you warn your children first and how many times you just don't fly out the handle and how many times you actually show compassion to your children in the midst of all that. Then we'll talk about who's harsh and unrealistic. But that's what God has done. They have entered the final stage before exile. They have entered the final stage before exile. The tables are about ready to turn because we're going to get Hazel, who's going to massacre, Jehu's going to be called a madman, 
and Elisha is going to die. Which means we're entering a new stage. Haziel is the new stage of God's judgment. Sometimes it's hard to see this and think like, these people are really jacked up. How does this apply to my life? It does. Maybe not on the same level of judgments, but God does the same thing with us. Okay, there are many, many times that, yeah, maybe he's not bringing like armies to put siege to your house and your disobedience and your like food is running out and armies are attacking you. But there is a certain extent where he has allowed bad things to happen. If you have constantly ignored God and you're not trusting him and you're doing your own thing and you're following your own will in an autonomous way, then maybe you have seen the judgments of God escalate in your financial well-being and your physical health and the things falling apart throughout the week in your home, all these kinds of things. And what God is doing, and yet at the same time, it's like, wow, how in the world did that get resolved so easily? Where did that come from? And I think if you look back at different times of your life, you can see God showing judgments and he's allowing everything to fall apart and then he cleans it all up and he's trying to communicate to you, I'm the one that you should come to. I'm the one that you should come to. And what he does on a macro scale with a nation, he also does on a micro scale in our own life. And he's using these judgments. He's allowing chaos to come into your life like the Egyptians. But he's also bringing order like he did for the Israelites in the middle of the plagues And he's bringing this chaos and order and chaos and order and hope that you can see his power and his mercy and the hope that you'll realize, why am I trusting in my bank accounts? Why am I trusting in my job? Why am I trusting in my lawyers? Why am I trusting in whatever you trust in? Because God seems to be the only one. My doctors and my lawyers and my banking accounts, they don't seem to know what's going on and they can't fix it. And it hasn't helped when it disappears like that and then it returns like that for no reason. And what God is saying is me. It's me. Come to me. Trust me. Follow me. But at the same time, I think we can clearly see what's happening in America. Things are drastically changing. There are incredible moments where we're like, that was so God and that merciful act when our country was protected or whatever. But we've also seen incredible acts of judgment. And I'm not a prophet. And I'm not going to stand up and say, like, every natural disaster was God punishing us. And I'm not going to say like 9-11 or all that. I'm not going to say that because I have no right. But what I can do say is that all throughout the Bible, I don't have to be a prophet and say what this is. But what we do see is God, when disaster comes, it's usually him pulling his hands off. And he uses disaster in one of two different ways. He uses it to refine our character as First Peter says, that I've allowed you to go through trials so that you'll be stripped of what you trust in so that you'll see who you really are and you'll depend on God. I'm refining your character in the fire. Or he uses it to bring us to our knees so that we actually cry out to God and no longer depend on ourselves. And those somewhat go hand in hand, but they also can be distinct from each other. And so what I can say is, I don't know why 9-11 happened. I don't know why there have been terrorist attacks here and there. I don't know why the housing market collapsed on us. I mean, I know it's the result (laughs) of evil men in the world. 
But I'm not going to say that God has specifically said I'm doing this to judge you. But what I can say is that God is using it to open our eyes to that whatever we're trusting in in America is not going to bring fulfillment in our lives. And whether God allowed that to happen or made it happen, I don't know. But God has used it to say, I want you to see me as God. You trust in the market of New York and it collapsed on you. You trusted in the housing market and it collapsed on you. You trusted in your job and you got laid off. You trusted in the security of the greatest military the world has ever seen and yet the terrorists still got in. You trust in these great doctors who can heal you of all kinds of things. But all our medicine has done is mutated sicknesses and diseases to a greater extent that we don't even know what to do with these things anymore. And why it's happening, I don't know. But I do know God is saying to you, stop trusting in these things. Because at the same time, there's so many people in your church and there's so many instances of your own life where God is miraculously taking, taking care of you financially in the midst of the housing collapse market. That God has fin- amazingly healed you despite the, the doctor saying, I don't know what's going on. That God has so miraculously protected your family in the midst of chaos and tragedy around you. And what God is saying is, that is me. Stop trusting in your horses and chariots. And are you going to be like the king of Israel? who has been with Yahweh your entire life and seen the stories, and you've been given great power and wealth and privileges as Americans in a middle-class society? Or are you going to be like the little girl and the Syrian generals and the people with skin diseases who see that even though you have great privileges in your middle-class or upper-class wealth, that spiritually speaking, we're all filled with skin diseases. And we're all poor. And we're all insignificant. And that's what really makes us like everybody else. And so, yes, politically speaking, this may not be us. But culturally and in our own hearts, this is something that we can pay attention to. And we need to have the eyes and the ears to see that the news is not just bad things happening all the time, but it's God doing things with Haziel's and the Ben-Hadad's and the kings and the Assyrians in a modern-day sense. And that we have horses and chariots today that take on different forms. And the question is, are you going to watch the news and trust in our economy and the greatness of America? Or are you going to fall to your knees and cry out to God? Or are you going to watch the news and say, Woe are we, we're so doomed, everything's going to fall apart. Or are you going to say, but God can bring us out of exile like he promised us. And that's what Kings is trying to communicate. The military, the politics, the culture seems foreign. But the lessons that God is teaching you, that you either wake up and trust in God rather than in the things of the country, and you trust in him that no matter how bad exile might be, he will always restore you to the land. That is the lesson that God is teaching you through the news. That's the lesson that God's teaching you through the news and what's going on. To specific events in the news, I have no idea. But to what God is trying to teach us, that is clearly revealed here. Does that make sense? 
And this is what we need to pay attention to because it is very easy for them to watch the news of the women cannibalizing their children and think, woe is me, I hate God and let's kill Elijah. And maybe we don't go that far, but we might say, why God? And then we begin to fall away from him gradually because we get too depressed or too prideful. And God is saying, no, 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 no. Remember, you are the Elishas because you are the ones with the spirit of God in you now, which means you're the ones in the divine council. And you're supposed to be the Elishas and the Elijahs and the Amoses and the Micahs going to the world and preaching this message that God will take care of you, not the country, and that God will restore you out of exile if my people fall on their knees and cry out to me. That's what God is trying to teach us in Kings.